started. In the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, welcome back, everybody. We're at the two-thirds mark. Things are winding down. This the sixth class out of nine. Uh, we're talking about holy orders today, and we've laid a lot of the groundwork for this sacrament in our discussion about the Mass, uh, but we're focusing on the minister of the Mass, the, the priest, today. Um, and so, again, we're going to try to, to break things down in terms of the Old Testament and the New Testament. We're going to switch back and forth a little bit. It's not going to be so clear-cut in terms of old and new, uh, because one explains the other. Uh, but let's talk about a few uh, general aspects to this. It's considered a shared sacrament in the sense that there are three levels. We have deacons, priests, and bishops, right? So it's it's three levels of the one sacrament. Uh, the bishop is the one who fully possesses the fullness of the sacrament. Uh, the priest is less so, and, and the deacon less less so even more. Um, we'll, we'll discuss that a little bit. There's three terms in the scriptures that describe these three sacraments. The, the Greek for it is episkopoi, which literally means overseer, and that's where we get the bishop. And then it also uses the, the term presbyter, uh, which means elder. And then finally, diakonos, which is servant. Okay. Now, the difference between episcopoi and presbyter in the scriptures, it's a little fuzzy. Okay. The, the theology behind it wasn't fully worked out, and there really wasn't a need for the lesser order of priests in the beginning because you had so few communities, you had 12 apostles who were the first bishops, and they went out and started new communities, and they would ordain someone who would be the bishop of that territory, right? So there wasn't huge dioceses where the bishop had to, you know, handle large amounts of room. The first thing that the church did, and, and the priest and deacon were acts of the church, right? The sacrament itself of holy orders was initiated by Jesus himself. But the priest, or the, uh, the church, had the ability to administer that sacrament as it sees fit. And so what we see in the Acts of the Apostles is they realize that they are uh, being overwhelmed, the bishops, and so they needed help. And so you have the deacons being created there in the Acts of the Apostles, right? A subset under the holy orders. But by the end of the first century, you look at the early church fathers, and it's a clear-cut distinction between bishop, priest, and deacon. It didn't take long for them to get everything worked out in terms of the details. But the sacrament itself is established by Jesus, and we'll try to show you that from the scriptures tonight. That'll be kind of the end point of where we're heading to. Just some basic ideas about the sacrament that we've talked about before. The minister of the sacrament, the creation of new bishops... The minister of that is the bishop himself, right? Uh, priests can't confect uh, holy orders. They are not ministers of holy orders. You need the full power of the sacrament, the bishop. Uh, the candidates for this, the matter, you know, matter in form we've been talking about, is a baptized male, right? Uh, baptized male can receive the sacrament, and the form of the sacrament is the laying on of hands. We'll see that in the scriptures as well. The laying on of hands with the, the consecratory prayer that is used calling down the Holy Spirit upon this individual that ordains them. That Now, a couple of things. We've talked about, um, I'm not sure if it was the last class or the class before, about the common priesthood. And we looked at the Old Testament in Israel, uh, specifically in Exodus chapter 19 where uh, this is right at the point where uh, they're at Mount Sinai after the Exodus. Uh, they're getting ready to receive the Ten Commandments. And this is from chapter 19, 
Let me start at verse 5. So, actually, if you want to flip to 1 Peter, because there's a, a New Testament passage which complements this, and I want to contrast the two of them. So, just go to 1 Peter in the New Testament, chapter 2. I'll give you a second to, to get there. All the way to the right. Yeah, after you get to all of Paul's letters in the book of Hebrews, it's after that. So again, I'll read this chapter from Exodus, and then we'll take a look at the, the pa- same passage in Peter, and it'll give you an idea, because what we're going to try to do here is contrast the Old Testament with the New Testament to show the consistency, to show that what happens in the Old Testament was a weaker version, but a, a prototype, if you will, of what was going to happen in the New Testament. Okay, The two are organically connected. So if you understand the one, it'll help you understand the other. All right, so Exodus chapter 19, starting at verse 5. Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice, this is God speaking here. Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my own possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. Right? This is covenant language here. God forming a kinship bond with the nation of Israel. Okay, a covenant. Remember, we saw the covenant fulfilled at Mount Sinai when Moses killed the bull, sprinkled the blood on the altar, and then sprinkled the blood on the people, right? So here God is talking about keeping the covenant. You shall be my own possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A kingdom of priests. Now there's two aspects to that word here. It's not just priests, but a kingdom of priests. And what does a kingdom signify? It signifies kingship, right? So it's a priest king. Now that sounds familiar based on past classes because you remember the first instance of the word priest in the scriptures was that guy Melchizedek, who we said was Shem, Noah's firstborn son, right? And he wasn't just a priest, he was a priest king. Okay, and we talked about the three offices that Jesus had, priest, prophet, and king. Okay, so here in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel itself was going to be a kingdom of priests. They would have those capacities as well, those three offices of priest, prophet, and king. Okay? Now, let's flip over to 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll start in verse 4. And think back, remember when we were talking about Peter when he got the keys, when Jesus gave him the keys to the kingdom, and he changed his name, his name was Simon, he said, you know, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven, so you will no longer be Simon, you will be rock, right? Peter, the word means rock, and on this rock I will build my church. So remember that idea of the rock here. So this is 1 Peter chapter 2. Same guy who's writing this, by the way. Come to me to that living stone rejected by men, but in God's sight chosen and precious. Right? The living stone. That's, he's talking about Jesus. Right? Come to Jesus, that living stone. He is the rock. And like living stones, be yourselves built into a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices. He's talking to the people that they would embody a priesthood, that they would offer spiritual sacrifices. Okay? But also that they would be like rocks, rocks in this house, building up. So just like Peter was the rock based upon the rock of Christ, right? He's a, a littler rock. Well, we're all part of the same building. The, the body of Christ, right? We're individual components to it. And just as Jesus is a priest, we participate in his priesthood. So back to verse 5. And like living stones, be yourself built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, right? We offer spiritual sacrifices through Christ. It's not our own priesthood. It's his priesthood 
through which we participate. Okay? Remember the last class, we were talking about the Eucharist. Right? We receive Christ into us, body, blood, soul, and divinity. And so because of that, because we receive Christ, we can act through him. Verse 6. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and he who believes in him will not be put to shame. To you, therefore, who believe, he is precious, but for those who do not believe, the very stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Right? Quoting from Psalm 118, which Jesus applied to himself. Then verse 8. And a stone that will make men stumble, a rock that will make them fall. For they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, that you may declare the wonderful deeds of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Right? It's the same idea that we see because who are the people in the Old Testament? They're the Israelites, but in a more general sense, they're God's people, right? His chosen people. But they were God's firstborn sons. It doesn't mean they're his only sons in that sense of all the nations of the earth, right? There's all the other people, the Gentiles, who are now incorporated into Christ. And so we all participate in that, what's called the common priesthood. Okay, that's the first step to establish here, that we see a common priesthood in the Old Testament and coming to the New Testament, we see a common priesthood as well. Now in the Old Testament, it was the, the sacrifices that they made were symbolic. They would sacrifice cattle, sheep, and goats. And the idea was, they would be for the forgiveness of sins. But did they actually forgive sins? No. But it was a showing of the people's intentions to be sorrowful for their sins. Okay? From the Catholic Church's perspective, what was going on there was not a sacrament. It would be closer to a sacramental. Okay? In the sense that, depending on the person's own disposition, the, the um, power of what was going on was dependent upon their own contrition, their own sorrow. Okay? Which is totally different from what happens in the sacraments because the sacraments are dependent upon Christ. It is Christ who is the true minister of the sacraments in the new covenant. It's dependent upon his holiness, not upon ours. Okay? So in the Old Testament, they're symbolic and they point forward to what's to come. Now, even in the Old Covenant, it didn't just stop at the, the common priesthood of the people because you also had a ministerial priesthood, right? You had Aaron and Aaron's sons, and then you had the Levites, right? These were people who would carry out the actual sacrifices, okay? So you had multiple levels to the priesthood. You had the common priesthood of all the people, but then you had a ministerial priesthood in the Old Covenant of Aaron, who was the high priest, and then under Aaron you would have his sons who were uh, in authority, but then below them you would have the Levites. So you had three different levels of ministerial priest, right? Just like we have bishops, priests, and deacons. Okay, so you see the parallel here. All right. Now, going back to the Old Testament. In the beginning, in the patriarchal period, in Genesis, where was the priesthood? We just talked about Melchizedek. What made him a priest? Anybody remember? Somebody take a stab at it. Who said it? Firstborn, right? It was a family thing. It was the domestic church. The church was in the family. You see Noah. You see Abraham building altars, offering sacrifice. Okay, and then their firstborn son for Abraham, Isaac, would then be the priest to Abraham, who was the high priest. And eventually, Isaac would become the patriarch. All right, and you would pass it down, the firstborn son. Okay, the, the problem was all the firstborn sons were failures. 
Okay, and we talked about this. And Israel itself was God's firstborn son, but they failed as well. You have the whole golden calf incident, right? So it was awaiting a true firstborn son. And that's why Melchizedek is held up as the example, right? Melchizedek, again, was a throne name. It means righteous king, king of righteousness. Um, but we've said, at least according to the book of Hebrews, it indicates that it was Shem, or at least that's how the author presents it. Whether it was historically Shem, you know, that's a different matter. But, you know, you look at the early church fathers, you look at um, the early writings of the time period, and they, it went, was taken for granted that Melchizedek was Shem. So the idea, though, is that the firstborn was the one who held the priesthood. So what happens in the Old Testament? You have the golden calf incident, and the firstborn sons are defrocked. Okay, you see that uh, in the book of Numbers, it lays out that the Levites will take the place of the firstborn sons. Okay, they have the genealogies of both of them, and the, or the genealogy of the Levites, and they say they become priests instead of the firstborn sons. And the idea behind it is that the, uh, at the golden calf, the Levites are the ones who remain faithful to Moses. They pull out their swords and kill all the people who are sacrificing to the golden calf. And Moses says, today you've ordained yourselves to the ministry. Okay. And again, along with the idea of firstborn sons, uh, we have Psalm 110. which is referenced in the book of Hebrews about Jesus. Um, we hear this all the time at Mass in the Liturgy of the Hours, where David, it's a coronation song. David has um, written this song for the coronation of his son Solomon as he ascends the throne. David was still alive when he took the throne. Real interesting story is you know, Solomon's older brother uh, tried to actually take the throne and had a coup and David you know, intervenes and ordains Solomon. And this is part of the ordination ceremony. Uh, Psalm 110, verse 1, it says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And Jesus applies this to himself. And then the line in verse 4, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Remember all the discussion about the covenant and swearing an oath. With the swearing of an oath, you form a covenant. And here's God is swearing an oath. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And the book of Hebrews, uh, in chapter 7 especially, makes this big argument that Jesus is the high priest because he is part of the order of Melchizedek. He's not in the line of Aaron or of the Levites. Right? It's going all the way back to that family domestic church. Okay? And the book of Hebrews, again, in, in its first chapter, points to Jesus as that high priest. If I can find it here. Yeah, in Jesus in chapter 1, you don't have to turn to that, just listen. Um... It's comparing Jesus to the angels and why? Because in the Old Testament, the angels were called sons of God. The Hebrew is Beni Elohim, right? They were called sons of God. So if Jesus is God's son, then maybe he's an angel. And the author of the Hebrews is saying, no, he's much more than what the angels are. In verse 5, this is Hebrews chapter 1. For to what angel did God ever say, you are my son, today I've begotten you? And then down in verse 6, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Now, that's actually a quote from Psalm 89, right? It's pointing all the way back to Psalm 89, talking about the firstborn, that Jesus is that firstborn, right? He's God's firstborn, right? Now, we have Adam, who in a sense was God's firstborn, right? He was the first man that was created, 
Okay, and we see there's, there's hints in Genesis that he actually acted as a priest as well. But Adam was God's firstborn by grace. Okay, through God's gratuitous nature, he made him firstborn. But Jesus is God's firstborn by nature. For, through all eternity, he is God's son, the father's son. So it's an eternal relationship. So Jesus possesses that sonship, and therefore that's what makes him the perfect priest. And that's why in Genesis, all these firstborns are supposed to be priests. Okay, now we looked at the common priesthood in the Old Testament, and we see how there's a common priesthood in the New Testament, right? the idea that we all can offer spiritual sacrifices. And if you've ever been to Father Newman's Mass, you've heard him, one of his favorite verses is from Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, you've all heard this many times before. I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Okay, we're to present ourselves. This is the old Catholic idea of offering it up. Okay, we offer up our own sufferings to be united to Christ's sufferings. We can only do that because we share this common priesthood. And it's not something, again, that's in us. We aren't individual priests. We're only priests in the sense that we are tied to Jesus. Okay, I'm going to make that a little bit more explicit as we go along here. But we share in his priesthood. That's the model for everything we see in the New Testament. We act through Christ. It's not something that is inherent to ourselves or anything about the human species. It's only in and through Christ that we can do this. Okay, but the question remains, what about the ministerial priesthood in the New Covenant? And that's where the Protest, our Protestant brothers and sisters you know, say, well, where is it? Where does Christ actually create ministers like we see in the old covenant in the new well we would expect there to be a corresponding ministerial priesthood in the new covenant because of what we've seen so far we have the old covenant pattern and we see the realization of that in the new covenant we have the the model and then the reality we go from the old to the new it's you know symbol to reality okay so if we see that progression in the Old Testament for the common priesthood, and then we see in the Old Testament the ministerial priesthood, we would expect to find something of that in the New Covenant, right? So, where is it? And so I want you to turn to Luke chapter 22, because it comes straight from Jesus' mouth, but there's a little difficulty in translation, which kind of makes it a little difficult to see, okay? But when you understand the word and you see the word and how it's applied in the Old Testament, it's pretty clear. Chapter 22 of Luke. And this is the Last Supper. And that whole episode begins around verse 14. We'll put it in context here. And just remember this. What we see in the Last Supper, remember the verbs that are used are tied in to the multiplication of the loaves and fishes, okay? Took, blessed, broke, gave. Those are the four verbs that we see. It's much clearer in uh, Mark and Matthew's gospel. Um, Luke uses a little bit of a different term for the blessed. He uses given thanks because the Greek there is Eucharist, Eucharisteo, which means give thanks because he wants the, 
this is occurring a little bit later on in Christian understanding, you know, in Christian time period, and everybody understands that the Eucharist means the Last Supper, right? So he's using language that the, his audience is more familiar with. But to give thanks and to bless is essentially equivalent, okay? But the same four verbs are used. So, Uh, let me just begin in verse 14. Chapter 22 of Luke, verse 14. And when the hour came, he sat at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Remember, the Passover, we've talked about this repeatedly. The Passover was the sacrifice. But what sacrifice was it? It was the 10th plague, which allowed the, Egypt, the Israelites to escape Egypt. Right? And the 10th plague was the death of the firstborn son. Right? Go back to Abraham. Abraham was, was promised a worldwide blessing. And he was going to sacrifice his own firstborn son. Right? But God stopped him, and Abraham said, God will provide a lamb for the sacrifice. But you don't see the lamb sacrificed until you get to the Passover. Right? And the Passover was the sacrifice of a lamb to prevent the death of the firstborn son, right? Now we have the real Passover taking place in the upper room with the real lamb, Jesus, the lamb of God. And he is God's firstborn son. It's the fulfillment of all these Old Testament types being taken, taking place right there. So it's a Passover, and he's earnestly desired to celebrate this with them. Before he suffers, and he links it to his crucifixion. Verse 16, For I tell you that I shall not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a chalice, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among you, yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I shall not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. And this is the line. Do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. He's charging them with something that they are going to have to do from here on out. Okay? But the word do is not a... a a literal translation of the Greek word there. The Greek word is, if I can pronounce it, poiete, poiete, which literally means to offer. If you were to translate this literally, it would be, offer this in remembrance of me. Now, that word, when you look at the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint, it's uh, the Greek translation was hugely popular at the time of Jesus. Okay, all the quotations, or not all, but most of the quotations in the New Testament do not come from the Hebrew version of the Old Testament. They come from the Greek, the Septuagint version of the Old Testament. Okay, that's where most of the translations come from. And when you look at the Greek version of the Old Testament, you see this word to offer repeatedly. And it's always associated with sacrifice. It's a priestly action. Okay? Uh, for example, in Exodus chapter 29, uh, verse 38, it says, Offer up the offer upon the altar. The word offer, again, is this poiete. Offer upon the altar two lambs a year old, day by day, continually. It's talking about the daily sacrifices that takes place in the temple. So plug that understanding into what Jesus is saying here. He's just offered his body and blood, right, through bread and wine. And again, go flash back to Melchizedek. He's the first priest mentioned. Okay, what was his sacrifice that he offered? It was bread and wine. Yes? Quick question. So, so, so why is not the word offer here? It is in the Greek. Or you mean the English? Yeah, because yeah, you know, English translator, they they flubbed it. They they think you know they tried to dumb things down for us. Is essentially what it is. Yeah, 
uh, but you lose some of the nuances of the text, right? So it's literally offer this in remembrance of me, okay? But he's commanding them to do this. Now, how are they going to offer this? Remember, we looked at this passage from the book of Revelation when we were talking about the sacrifice of the Mass. Jesus in heaven right now is standing, a lamb standing as though he's been slain, offering himself eternally. Okay, right now. But how is that applied to us? And he's commanding his apostles offer this. You know, it's a command. So he's making them priests, right, in order to be able to do this because offering is a priestly function. And what are they offering? They're offering the sacrifice of Melchizedek, the bread and wine, which Jesus has just said is my body and blood. He formed the covenant at the Last Supper. It's the same language that we see at Mount Sinai. This is the blood of the covenant. You see how it's all tied together, right? Jesus is offering the definitive covenant sacrifice of the new covenant in the upper room, which is intimately tied to what takes place on Calvary, his death, because it's the death of the firstborn son, it's the death of the Lamb of God. And he's offering it to God, which we see in the book of Revelation, him in heaven offering himself as the Lamb. And he's commanding his apostles to do this, in memory of me. Offer it. Now, back to that episode with the multiplication of the loaves and fish. The writers of the gospel wanted you to connect that offering in the upper room with the multiplication of the loaves and fish. Why? Because the sacrifice of the mass happens all over the world, continually. Right? And people are going to scratch their head and say, how? Well, how did Jesus feed 5,000 people with five loaves of bread? And he filled up 12 baskets full with the five loaves of bread. Well, it's a miracle, right? The same way it's a miracle that the priest standing at the altar at Mass is offering up Jesus body and blood. And he is standing there in persona Christi, is the the phrase that is used, in the person of Christ. Okay? He's there representing Christ. And it's a renewal of the covenant. This is my blood of the covenant, he says. And this is the renewal of that covenant because covenants need to be renewed. They need to be remembered like we remember birthdays. Okay, it's a formal liturgical remembrance of the covenant. It's bringing it forward in time from the past to the present so we can participate in it because we weren't there 2,000 years ago. This is why he does this. Okay, what happens then? Flip to John's gospel, a passage we've already looked at. We're going to look at it again when we get to confession. This is John chapter 20. It's the upper room. It's the first day of the week. He comes to them and he says, peace be with you. He says it twice. Remember this biblical idea of the sandwich. Whenever you want to highlight something, you put the same words on either side of it. You know, because it's like two pieces of bread with the meat in the middle. Okay, so he says, peace be with you. He says, peace be with you. What's in the middle? When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. What does that represent? His sacrifice. Okay, the lamb's sacrifice. The true Passover sacrifice. That's the power of what's about to happen. That's what we need to focus on. It's through his sacrifice that what takes place takes place. He says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I send you. Okay. Think about that. This is verse 21. As the Father has sent me, even so I sent you. Now back that up with the Last Supper. 
do this in remembrance of me. How are they going to do that? Because Jesus is sending them, just as the Father sent Jesus. And how did the Father send Jesus? As a high priest. Okay, and what takes place after this? Verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them. The last time you see God breathing on man is Adam at his creation, where he breathes life into him. He breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now, the forgiveness of sins in the Old Testament was tied to the province of the priest. Only the priest could offer sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins. Right Now, they didn't forgive sins. It, again, we've, we mentioned this, that it was to stir repentance in the sinner, but it could only take place through the priest who offered the sacrifice. Okay, It was a foreshadowing of what would take place here and now. But Jesus is giving this authority, this priestly power, to the apostles through the Holy Spirit. Right? So he commanded them at the Last Supper to offer this sacrifice. And that's the reason why on Monday Thursday, before uh, you know, the beginning of the Passion Tide, of, of uh, the Triduum, Easter Triduum, we celebrate on Monday Thursday the the creation of the priesthood, right? That's when it's traditionally celebrated. But we see him here giving the power of the priest to the apostles. Now, the next step in this whole process is where do you see this play out afterwards? You know, cause there's much more than just the Gospels, okay? Did the early church understand this? Well, we've already said we've seen that use of the term episcopoi, presbyter, and diaconos throughout the New Testament. They make good use of that term, right? We see Peter there in 1 Peter chapter 2 talking about the people being a royal priesthood. But we can see a couple other instances of this. If you go back to uh, Romans chapter 15, it's the end of the book of Romans, right after the Acts of the Apostles, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, then Romans, all the way towards the end. There's 16 chapters in Romans. This is 15. Paul's wrapping things up in this letter to the Romans. You know, he's laid out all the doctrine about uh, the Holy Spirit and baptism and, and how we are justified. And beginning in verse, uh, let's see. Well, let's back up to verse 14, put it in context here. Chapter 15 of Romans, verse 14. And he's, he's giving his reasons for writing so boldly to the people. He says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brethren, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given to me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, in the priestly service of the gospel of God. Do you get that? Paul sees his ministry as a priestly service, as a priestly action, right? Because he's been ordained. So everything he does, he does through his priesthood. And in terms of his application of that, Flip over to 1 Timothy. Just keep going to the right a little bit. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Who is Timothy? Timothy was one of Paul's trusted associates. He was a young man who Paul put in a position of authority. He ordained him a bishop. Right? And 1 Timothy here is, a lot of this is encouragement. Because he's a young bishop, he's an encouragement and advice about how to live out his priestly ministry. And so, 1 Timothy chapter 4, go to verse 14. It 
give you a second here. First Timothy 14. As we see here Paul referring to Timothy's ordination. First Timothy chapter 4, verse 14. Do not neglect the gift you have, right? The gift of holy orders. That's what he's referring to. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophetic utterance when the elders laid their hands upon you. The elders, the presbyters, right? That's the, the word, um, which in the Old Testament, we see the word Cohen, which literally means bearded ones, okay? The presbyters. These are the people that laid their hands on him to ordain him. Right? That's the sacrament being realized in the Old Testament. I mean, in the New Testament. Paul referring back to Timothy's ordination. And we also see it um, in Matthias, you know, in the book of Acts, when Matthias was the one that replaced Judas. Okay? He was selected to fulfill that role. So, you know, we, to sum this up, we saw the Mass two weeks ago, okay, where the, the church offers the sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus is eternally in heaven as the firstborn son, offering himself. And he's there, the book of Hebrews tells us he offered one sacrifice, one sacrifice for all, okay? He didn't have to die again. What we see in the Mass is not Jesus being crucified again. That's not what takes place. What takes place is the representation of his sacrifice. It's not Jesus as he was here on earth that the priest offers up. It's the risen Jesus. Jesus as he is in heaven that is held up. That Jesus himself held up at the Last Supper when he said, this is my body, this is my blood. Okay, and we see from the multiplication of the loaves and fish how this sacrifice can take place throughout the world because it's a true miracle of God. And the ministerial priests throughout the world offer this same sacrifice that Jesus commanded them, do this in remembrance of me. They offer that same sacrifice, tapping in to the priestly authority of Jesus, right? They're not offering this sacrifice on their own authority. They are up there representing Jesus. They don't say this is his body. Okay? They're in the person of Christ and they say this is my body, which is given for you. Right? That's what the priesthood is all about. Okay? And it's one of uh, the sacraments which is vitally important, which was lost in the Reformation from, our, uh, the, from the Protestant, our bro- Protestant brothers and sisters. They lost the ordination of the sacraments. Now, uh, the Orthodox, they retained it because they retained the same understanding of the seven sacraments. They call them mysteries, but you know, that's the same uh, understanding. Okay, we talked about that in the first class. They have all seven sacraments. They have valid orders because they've kept through all these years the same uh, matter and form for the sacrament. And they have this continual um, apostolic succession. Okay? This is one thing, you know, when I you know, started getting more serious about the church that really hit home to me is the idea of apostolic succession. And it's through the sacrament of holy orders. Jesus laid his hands on the apostles and ordained them. And we see from 1 Timothy how the apostles then laid their hands on other men, ordaining them, and they on other men, and so on and so on throughout history up to our present day where our own bishop had hands laid on him, ordaining him, which can be traced all the way back to the apostles and to Christ, right? It's an unbroken line to Christ through this sacrament. Okay, that's all I got for tonight. Anybody have any questions? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
one time Father Newman said in a homily, he said after Jesus died, most of the miracles passed over into the sacraments. Yeah. Does that mean all this stuff that's going on in the church, all this dissension, uh, stuff with the priests, the priests possibly getting married, that the sacraments are just standing aloof going on having their efficacy regardless of the behavior of anybody in the church? Yeah, those are two different things. Um, the, the question is, what's the, the relationship between sinful priests, you know, pe- priests who are, you know, doing all sorts of horrible things, you know, um, some of them, almost, you know, you can say outright heretics, you know, uh, committing horrible sins, and yet the sacraments themselves operating, as we talked about, ex operate operato, by the work done that they depend upon Christ, right? And so what's the disconnect there? Well, go back to when, to when the, the bishops first came into existence. What happened that night, right? After the Last Supper, they all betrayed him. Every one of them. Every one of them essentially committed apostasy, if you really think about it. You know, they all denied him. They all ran away. Okay? As bad as things are in the church right now, and they are pretty bad, it's not even close to what happened that night. Because as bad as things are now, you don't have 100% of all the bishops in the world betraying Christ. We still have good bishops. We still have good priests. So it's never going to get that bad. Okay? Thanks be to God. (laughs) So remember that. You know, and, you know, the, the scriptures promised that there would be trials and, and people falling away. Right? And if you look in the church's history, there are several times in the past where the church went through horrible things. Things that looked like the church was going to go out. You know, like it was going to end. You know, how can the church ever recover from this kind of thing? But it has through unspeakable odds because we're not in control. God is in control. And he promised us the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Right? So don't lose faith. You know, and if you want the church to be a better place, then start with conversion, your own and my own. Right? Because that's where it begins. Right? We get the bishops that we deserve. You want holy bishops... You know, and holy priests, well, repent, you know, and pray for them. Right? It starts with us. So, good question. Yeah. Where did the cardinals come in? Oh, the cardinals, okay. That, a cardinal is not a, a sacrament. Now, traditionally, cardinals are bishops, but they don't have to be. Um, there's always been a few cardinals who were actually priests who didn't receive holy orders. Uh, there's been some famous ones in recent memory. Um, but you don't even have to be ordained technically to be a cardinal. A cardinal is, and well, what it's traditionally been is an advisor to the Pope. An advisor to the Pope. They wear the scarlet because they are, should be willing to shed their blood for Christ. Um, and uh, they've also been given the authority to elect the new Pope. Right, and the way canon law is written, you have to be eighty. I think it's eighty years old or younger. Once you hit eighty, uh, I'm not sure if it's eighty or eighty-one. 80. That is it, eighty-one. Yeah, that you lose your ability to vote, yeah. uh, but you still retain that capacity to be an official advisor to the Pope. But it's not part of the sacraments, although we tend to associate it with uh, bishops, because traditionally that's who becomes a cardinal as a bishop. Is that good? Anybody else have any questions? Yes. No, the way uh, ordination works, there's three degrees to the ordination. It's all one sacrament, uh, but you go through deacon, uh, priest, and then bishop, right? So, if, you know, somebody, you know, for some reason, and this has happened. Uh, for example, there was several times in history where a layman was elected to the Pope, right? Who's the Pope? It's the Bishop of Rome. So you've got to be a bishop. 
So you, the layman would then be uh, ordained a deacon, a priest, and then a bishop, you know, back to back, and then established as the Bishop of Rome. Yeah. And that's a good question. You know, you have to go through. And when priests are ordained, they become what are called transitional deacons. And then usually within a year, they take the next step and become priests. And the, the difference between the holy orders, there's only one sacrament. It's an intensification of the sacrament is what takes place in the different ceremonies. Laura, do you have something? Yeah, I do. Max's heart. So you're telling me that men who have not been ordained, who have not been through the training, the teachings, and all this, elect the Pope? Well, I'm saying technically a cardinal could be somebody who's not ordained, right? Okay. That doesn't happen in practice. Okay. But we do see examples of someone who is a priest being made a cardinal who then says, you know, I'm not worthy. I don't want to be a bishop, you know. Uh, cardinal Dulles was an example of recent memory. He's a famous priest, um, you know, great theologian, and he was given uh, the cardinal's hat, but he did not become a bishop. The, the Pope picks his cardinals, yeah. And through canon law, the traditional number is 120 cardinals, but that will sometimes vary. You know, once they hit their 80th birthday, they have to, or they don't have to resign, but they are no longer able to elect the next Pope. So they're not treated like a retired Pope or Bishop within the church, you know, the residences and all that kind of stuff, or are they? Um, that kind of more mundane aspects to their life, I don't know. It would depend because a lot of these guys are set up in individual dioceses. You know, presumably they could retire at that point, um, but they would still have some ceremonial duties that they could partake in. Uh, they could technically just retire and, and be out of the public public eye. But anybody else have anything? All right. Um, thank you all for coming. And what's next time? Can't remember. Marriage. Marriage. Okay. All right. We got marriage, and then um, confession, and then anointing of the sick. All right. So the final three. Okay. In the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Merciful Lord, let the evening prayer of your church come before you. May we do your work faithfully. Free us from sin and make us secure in your love. We ask this through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. In the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.